0: Well, at this point, our threes and fours are dismissed to their classes, and I invite, with you, or invite you with me to turn in the gospel of Mark, we're going to be in Mark 15, verses 16 through 20, and if you do not have a Bible with you, that is okay, because we've got, we've got plenty, so if you don't have a Bible, slip up your hand, and one of our members will bring one to you, we will be in Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 20. So this morning, we are following the suffering servant as we've been doing over the past few weeks. We are following along. In the journey that Mark is taking us on, following Jesus as he makes his way toward the cross. And this morning, specifically, we are going to see Jesus as a king. We're going to see Jesus specifically as the one true king. He is the king. And we will see it this morning. So I want you guys, before we even read the text, just to think to yourselves of what you think about when you think about a king. What do you think about when you think about a king? Maybe you think about a kingdom that the king rules over. Maybe you think about someone who is ruling and they've got riches. They've got wealth. They've got power. Maybe you think about the British royal family. Maybe you think about old pictures that you saw in elementary school of of old British monarchs with with the white hair curled up and the fancy clothes. Maybe you think about servants surrounding a king, feeding them grapes, and fanning them, and and serving their every need. Maybe you think about a throne, and a robe, and a crown, and a staff they rule with. Maybe you think about the scenes of a king entering into a city and an entourage going before them saying, Make way, make way, the king is here. What do you think about when you think about a king and a kingdom? Well, this morning we will see what it means what we'll see what it means to be a true and perfect king. We will see Jesus as the only true and worthy king in all of his beauty. And a newsflash, just a little bit of a precursor. It's not the ways I just described. So let's look together as we look at our Savior King, our servant King in Mark chapter 15. Let's actually start in verse 15. Mark 15, verses 15 through 20. The Word says this, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 16, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him with a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head With a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes, or put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray right now that you would speak through your word, you would show us Christ, that you would show us the king. And I would pray that you would cause us to fall before you as the one true king. Help us right now. Help me to rid myself of any self-doubting thoughts, of any thoughts that might Take focus away from the throne that you have. So Lord, uh, I just pray that you would move me out of the way and speak through your word, Lord. We need you. We, we are desperate and needy, yes. and we need you to speak through yes. us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the story of the Bible, if, if you are not, if you didn't catch on to it like I alluded to it just now, the story of the Bible can be seen through many different lenses, and one of those lenses is that of a king and his kingdom. That's a story, a theme you can trace, starting with the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end. From the very first page of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, we see God being a king. He speaks, and what happens? Things are created. He, he I mean, all of nature obeys his voice and that the created beings, adam I mean the humans, Adam and Eve, he breathes life into their lifeless bodies. And he commissions, he the king commissions them to live on his mission. To be what? To be fruitful. To multiply. To reflect his kingly image. And to rule on the earth. But it doesn't take long. Actually just two more chapters of reading where we see the first disobedience of the king's people. In Genesis chapter 3, we read about Satan tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. He tempts them with something like this. Do you want to be like God? Do you want to be like the king? Well, then what are you doing obeying him? His rules he gave you, his commission that he gave you is for your detriment. He doesn't want what's best for you. So if you want to be like the king, you've got to disobey the king, and then you'll be like him a lie. But what do Adam and Eve do? What do the first humans do? Out of pride, they sin. They rebel against the king and from that point on through the rest of the Old Testament scriptures, it points to the fact that sin messed everything up. Sin messed everything up. Not the least of that would be the relationship between between the king and his created People sin drove a wedge between that, and sin enters into the worlds uh, ent- enters into the world, and as people are born, nations are made. Nations fight against one another. There's 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 violence, and out of all this violence, out of all this evil, God calls a man in Genesis twelve, named Abraham, and through Abraham, God says He will build a kingdom through this man and through his. Family, and that people is the Israelites, the people of the promise, where God Himself will be their God and they will be His people. But that does not satisfy the people. See, all the nations around them, all the nations around Israel, they have a physical king, they have a king they can look to and say, That's our king, Israel. What's your king? Well, you can't see him, it's God, and they want. A king they can see with their own eyes. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, look with me at verse 5. He says, behold, or or, the elders gather together and they say to Samuel, who is a prophet of God, they say, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they, listen up right here, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And their request for a king, an earthly king, is granted. But their kings stink, their kings are re- sinners. And even their good kings are bad kings. The best king, King David, failed. He stinks. In the midst of their bad kings, their true king, God, gives them yet another promise that we read. He says this to David, and he says this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In the midst of groaning for a king, he says, When your days are fulfilled, starting in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the Son of Men. Verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Verse 16. And your house, he says to David, your house and your kingdom, the Son who comes after you, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Whoa. What did we just read here? What, 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 what just took place? Was a promise from God to david that there's going to be a king there's going to be a king that comes from his line who is going to be god's son who is going to rule forever whose kingdom will never end a perfect king who is this king where is he in the prophecies of isaiah we get more promises that a king is coming children of israel watch for this king he's coming The Messiah Christ is coming. Isaiah says that he'll be born of a virgin. That he will be David's true son. That he will have the Spirit of God resting on him. And Isaiah 52 prophesies of this coming king when it says in Isaiah 52 chapter 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. And for the rest of the Old Testament, we, like the watchmen in verse 8, and the Old Testament readers and children of Israel are watching for this king who will come and bring good News. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. But every king, every judge failed. They did not bring good news, but they sinned, and they led Israel deeper and deeper into rebellion from God. Where is this promised king? Where is the son of David? Because their bad kings failed, their nation Israel falls. They fall into deeper rebellion. They fall into exile. And that's how the Old Testament leaves us. Darkness. Waiting for the son of David, the true king, to come. Looking like watchmen for the king. And it doesn't take long in the New Testament for us to see who that king is. The first words, the first sentence of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is born truly God and truly man, Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 says the true son of David. What does that allude to? That promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there's coming a king, a true king whose throne, rule, kingdom, and will never end. And Jesus' first words in the gospel of Mark that we read. Jesus' first words in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 are this. It says Jesus came from Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Proclaiming the good news of God. And he said this, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent of the gospel. Remember that? Remember that prophecy in Isaiah 52? How beautiful are the feet of him who does what? Brings good news. Who brings the gospel. And that's what we see Jesus doing. Repent. The kingdom of God's here. What's the implication? I'm the king. I I rule over this kingdom. Repent and believe in me. And during his public time of ministry, Jesus the king, he does kingly things, doesn't he? We see him in Mark, just just to name a few. We see him casting out demons. We see him walking on water. We see him storming. Like when there's a storm around, we see Jesus saying, be silent. And guess what? The, the storm obeys his voice. We see him heal paralyzed men. We see him heal sick women. We see him raise dead to life. Who can do that? A king. No, no, no. The king. And his kingly authority is on full display. But we also see Jesus the king doing things that, are unbef- that would be unbefitting to a king. Don't we? We see him having we see him having parties, not with those who rule like he does, but who does he have parties with? Sinners and tax collectors. We see Jesus, although a king, assuming the posture of a servant and washing the disciples' feet. We see Jesus, whose throne endures forever, teaching on humility, teaching on meekness, Saying, if you want to be the first of all, be the last. He turned, and we see Jesus teaching on caring for widows and poor people and those who are the lowest of the lows. A king doesn't do that. Jesus turns the idea of what it means to be a king and what it means to live in a kingdom on its head. His kingdom is a paradoxical kingdom. And three times in the Gospel of Mark, three times Jesus tells his disciples what exactly his kingdom mission is. He says, this is why I came. Does he say, I came to overthrow Rome? I came to take the throne from Caesar because I want it. I came to rival Caesar. No, no, no. What is his mission? We just read it. Pauline read it in our service. Mark 10, it says this. Jesus says to his disciples, the son of man, he's alluding to, Daniel, when it says the Son of Man will come with power riding on the clouds, he says the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Verse 45 says this, for the Son of Man came not to be served like a king normally does, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. What kind of king is that? A servant king. And starting in Mark chapter 15, we, as we see Jesus' death, looming his crucifixion on the doorstep we see jesus starting to be identified as a king even more six times in mark 15 he is called a king much more than any other time in mark double the time in mark that he's called a king as the crucifixion uh, as the crucifixion comes closer we see the kingly status of jesus jump off the page to us so now With all of that background over looking for a king, over what a king is, let us go back to the text and look at Mark chapter 15. Start at verse 2. He says, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, what? You've said so. It would do well for you to say that I am the king. Verse 9, Pilate again saying to the crowds, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They said, No, 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 no. Verse 12, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cry out again, Crucify him. Verse 15, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, The king, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside a palace. That being where a king would be, right? They led him away inside a palace, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him with a purple cloak. And they twisted together a crown of thorns. They put the crown of thorns on his head. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail! King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and paying homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. The king has been beaten, the king has been captured. The king has been delivered. The king has been scourged, beaten, entrails falling out of his body, bloodied, beaten almost to the point of death. And he's led out to be crucified. So let us look at just two scenes in Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 20. We'll look at two scenes and then we'll just look at one point of application. So two scenes in Mark 15, 16 through 20, and then one point of application. The first scene is the soldier's parody of King Jesus. The soldier's parody of King Jesus is found in verses 16 through 19. Jesus, as he predicted in Mark 10, is now fully in the hands of Gentiles. He's in the hands of the Romans delivered by Pilate for his crucifixions and how do the soldiers receive him? They receive him by mocking him. And have you noticed, I hope you have, have you noticed in the gospel of Mark that the physical suffering of Jesus takes a back seat to the mocking and like the emotional suffering that Jesus endures? Time and time again it's like it says yeah he was beaten, he was was scourged, But then he focuses on, and they mocked him, this way, this way, this way. Well, I I was dwelling on that, and I was thinking, why? Why does Mark focus so much more on the mocking? Well, it's important for us to remember that what Jesus went through in the crucifixion was not unique at the time. Like, according to historians in Israel at this time, there were approximately 30,000 criminals who were crucified. 30,000 people who died the same death that Jesus died physically. It was a common means of capital punishment at the time. So even though it was awful, brutal, we can't imagine it, the means of his death were not unique. So what was unique about Jesus' suffering and death? Well, the scripture tells us that it was unique the way in which he was mocked the way in which he was um, just brutally mocked jesus did not simply die as a criminal but he was seen as a joke in the eyes of the romans jewish historians tell us that life at this time in this world was cruel like it, it was it was a bitter time to be alive if you were alive at this time especially if you were not citizen of Rome and if you were not up to their status they would tease mock harass people who they deemed to be mentally deficient if you, they didn't think you were mentally up to it like like they were they would they would they would mock harass and tease them and this is exactly how we see Jesus being treated the verse tells us look at verse 16 it says that they usher him into a palace in front of the whole battalion of soldiers. This group of soldiers, a battalion, would number around 600 men. So get the picture with me. Beaten almost to the point of death, bloodied, innocent, singular King Jesus ushered into in front of 600 armed soldiers with weapons with I mean armor on, and they're all surrounding him, and they're and, and just remember remember what the charge what was the charge that we looked at against Jesus? It was that of treason, right? That he was they they said here's Jesus who who is who thinks he's a king? He thinks he can rival Caesar. That's why he is taken this way. So they use they 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 take. Jesus' accusation, the, the accusation against Jesus, and that's how they mock him. Look at verse 17. They clothe him with a purple cloak, and they twist, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Make no mistake about this scene. This is a parody. This is a comedy. This is a show. This is almost a game for the Romans. They clothe him in a mocking cloak. What was a cloak? A cloak is something that a king would wear. Cloak as is a king's garb. They would and, and in fact purple was the most expensive dye at this time. So they, they put him in a king's cloak, and it's almost like saying, You think you're the king of the Jews? You think you're the king who can rival our king? Well, here's a cloak while we beat and mock you. The crown of thorns that was placed on his head was a mocking crown of thorns. A crown was usually at this time, it was gold around it. Gold leafs signifying military power and royalty, but what is the crown made of that they place on his head? Of thorns, tiny little splinters placed on his head. It's almost like they're saying, "You think you deserve a crown, Jesus? Well, here's the crown that we think you deserve—a painful, ugly, fake. I mean, a fake crown." Verse eighteen. And then they began to mockingly salute him. Mockingly salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. The most common greeting at this time for Caesar, their their ruler, was something like this. Ave Caesar, or hail Caesar. And this bears a striking resemblance to what they mock and jeer Jesus with here. Hail Jesus, king of the Jews. A mocking proclamation. And as far as the soldiers are concerned here, they think Jesus is a lunatic. They think Jesus is out of his mind. A lunatic. Who thinks he's a king? Who thinks he can rival Caesar? He can't rival Caesar. Really, Jesus? You can rival Caesar? Here you are alone, bloodied, beaten. You have no one supporting you. Your family, not here. Your friends, not here. disciples who you spend all this time with, nowhere to be found. You can't rival king. But this this mocking was not only of Jesus, but it was also on the Jews. The Romans had no love lost for the Jews. And now the fact that they could take this man who they thought was crazy, they could take this lunatic and say, Hail, king of the Jews. They could say, All right, people that we hate, Jews, this is your king? Really? This guy is your king? And all that made the joking made the mocking more humorous. Verse 19, And they were striking his head with a reed. And they were spitting on him. A universal sign of disrespect. And they are kneeling down in homage to him. Kneeling down in homage to the fake king in their minds who absolutely is out of his mind. And in all of this, Jesus utters not a word. We're not given a single word of protest that Jesus says in this moment. This had to be disappointing for the Romans, didn't it? For a, they, they thought it would be a sport. They could throw him out there. And they probably wanted to see him fight and put up a fight. Opens not his mouth. Puts not a word. I mean, and he says not a word. Does not stand up for himself in any way. And we are reminded again... Of the prophecies of Isaiah, that this coming king would do exactly this. Look at Isaiah 50, verse 6. It'll be on the screen. It says of the coming servant king, I gave my back, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Does that sound like Jesus in this moment? First scene the soldiers mocking of King Jesus. Scene number two, verse 20, the soldiers plan for King Jesus. That's the second scene. The soldiers plan for King Jesus. Verse 20 says, and after they had mocked him, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to be crucified. They they take away any resemblance of a king, even if it was mocking, and they give him back his clothes that he had just been beaten to the point of death in, almost death in. They give him back his clothes soaked in blood and flesh, and from there they lead him away. Uh, We'll talk about this next week, but a Roman execution squad would be four soldiers and then a centurion leading them, who is who the leader of the battalion. And such a squad of four with one leader, they march him to the site where he will die. The blows, the spitting, the mocking, all of this just a prelude to the more severe suffering that Jesus will now endure. And they lead him out to be lifted up on the cross. To die a mocking painful, undeserved criminals' death. And that's their plan, our, ver- our text tells us. That's our plan. And their plan is being executed before us. And we're left once more. This is how our text leads us. We are left once more asking a similar question like we have a couple of times. A question like this. Why? Why in the world did it have to happen this way? Like, why did the innocent king have to suffer this way. Well although the soldiers, the soldiers thought it was their plan to deliver up Jesus, this was God's plan. This is why Jesus came. Jesus is not surprised by the brutality. He's not surprised by the mocking. He's not surprised by the suffering. Well, all of this was plan. A for God. It was the only way. So even though the Gentiles thought they were delivering over a crazy man to kill him and laugh at him, oh no, God was delivering over Jesus for his purposes. Acts 20, I mean Acts chapter 2, Peter makes this point when he says this. This Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. So what's the picture that we get here? God uses the evilest, the most evil, evilest is not a word, God uses the most evil of intentions to accomplish His great plan. The mocking, the suffering, what does it do? It fulfills scriptures written before they even knew Jesus existed. The crucifixion allowed Jesus To die, not just a criminal, not just as a show, but he died for the sins of the world. The crucifixion was God's plan so that Jesus could drink the full wrath of God against sin upon himself. This is why the king came. The king came not to build wealth for himself, the king came not to serve himself. The king came not for an earthly kingdom, but the king came to die. Listen, Jesus is not a king despite the cross. Like the cross does not take away from Jesus' kingly nature. Jesus' Jesus's kingdom mission is not cut short by the cross. The cross is part of the plan. It was the plan. And Jesus' death is not a precursor to the real kingly work that happens through his resurrection. No, 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 no. Jesus is king by way of the cross. This is how Jesus is king. The Roman soldiers think they've got him. The Roman soldiers think that they are making a joke of him, but they have missed it entirely. Jesus, the true king, is standing right in front of them, guiltless, and everyone missed it. And isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic in their mocking? (laughs) In their mocking, they rightly proclaim Jesus as exactly who he is. They think they're mocking, but guess what? They acknowledge in word and deed that Jesus is the king. This scene that we read really acts as Jesus' enthronement ceremony. They crown him with what they think is a mocking crown, but guess what? A crown that Jesus deserves. Because he's a king. They crown, they robe him with what they think is a mocking robe, but guess what? They dress him up like a king, because he is a king. And he will they, they hail him king of the Jews. They think they're mocking, but guess what? He deserves to be hailed as king. And 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 next week we will see that he will be lifted up on not a throne. Lifted up, not on a throne, but what does he lift it up on? A cross. Because that's what the king came to do. He came to be lifted up for sinners like you and like me. He came to deal finally and decisively with the greatest problem to the kingdom of God. And what is that? starts with an S, Sin. He came to die to show that He is the King who lays down His life so that everyone, child, adult, slave, free, servant, man, woman, everyone might receive forgiveness and be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Colossians 1, 13-14 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is king. So now, just one point of application. One point of application for you. And that is this. Fall before King Jesus. Fall before King Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one who has been long foretold. Remember Isaiah 52? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And his feet are beautiful. You know why? Not because they've been pampered, but because they were pierced for your transgressions. How beautiful are his feet that were pierced for You, And he brings us good news. He brings us peace. He brings us happiness. He brings us salvation. And he reigns. How beautiful are the feet of Jesus who brings good news. He is the hope of the ages. He is Isaiah's great light. He is Abraham's offspring. He's the blessing of Jacob. He is the Judah's might. He is David's true son. David's true son who's the king. He's the desire of nations. He's the promised salvation. He is God with us. So may we not miss it. May we not miss it like the Romans missed it. But may we see Jesus in all of his beauty as the king. So you might be here this morning. You might when I mean, you might be here this morning and you have never considered this fact that God so loved the world that he became a man. God so loved the world that he left his royal throne behind in order to die for your sins. You might be here this morning and you never never ponder that but he died for you so that you can have Life everlasting. So the prom—I mean, the, the, the invitation for you is clear this morning. Fall before King Jesus. That's our application point. Fall before the King. He's the King who gave his life for you. He's the King that, who offers you right now. The King offers you right now free transferal from the kingdom of sin to the kingdom of the Son. And you don't have to pay for the ticket either. He gives it to you freely, free transferal by faith in Him. Fixed status as a royal member of the kingdom of God. Complete forgiveness of your sin now and forever. So, repent of your sin. Repent of trying to be the king of your own life. There's something far better. There's something far bigger God Himself is beckoning you to be a part of His kingdom. Something far better than the kingdom, the, the kingdom and the king that you think you are. So fall upon King Jesus. And if you're in this room, if you're in this room and you have been transferred, you you have believed in Jesus, that he died for your sins, the response, guess what? Look at application point no, number one. Fall before King Jesus. May we proclaim him and shout, Hail, King of the Jews. And we're not mocking when we say it. Hail, King Jesus. May we crown him with many crowns. May we crown him with the crown that he deserves. He deserves our lives. May we Robe Him with the robe that He deserves. Our lives. May we lay our pride down. May we lay our wills down. May we lay ourselves down at the foot of the cross before King Jesus. So if you're here, and if you are suffering, if you're suffering, or if you're dealing with sin, indwelling sin, or if you are dealing with self Reliance, thinking you, the king of your little kingdom, fall before King Jesus. Return to the king. He is your maker. The king whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. What kind of king has a light burden? King Jesus has a light burden. And he took the burden upon himself. There has never been a king like this. Full of grace and mercy. So be about the king's business. Honor the king. Worship the king. Adore the king. Seek to serve the king. Obey the king. He is worth it now and forevermore. The king came not to serve, but to, no, not to be served, but to serve, to give his life for you. And He has. Amen. So we're, gonna, we're about to physically respond in two ways. Just like last week, we're going to respond first by taking the Lord's Supper. And just a, as a word, uh, just a reminder of what the Lord's Supper is, the Lord's Supper is a supper that Jesus institutes so that we would remember His suffering, that we would remember His death. And just as a way of reminder, this is a family meal that we partake of. If you, um, and when I say that, I mean this meal is for those who identify with the king and with his people. This meal is for those who are Christians and have, are members in good standing of local churches. So if this is you and you're a part of the king's people, take, eat, and remember Christ has died for you. But if you are not, if you have not repented of your sin, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, then this meal of remembrance is not for you. We would ask that you observe and just, and, and, and count the cost and, and reflect on Jesus giving his life for you. And after we take the Lord's Supper, we will stand together and we will sing these words in a song called The King in All His Beauty. Now see the king who wears a crown, one made of shame and splinters, the sacrifice for ruined man, the substitute for sinners. As earth is stained with royal blood and quakes with love and fury, he breathes his last and bows his head, the king in all his beauty. Now, see the Savior lifted up, the Lamb who reigns in splendor, the hope of every tribe and tongue. His kingdom is forever. Bring praise and honor to his courts. Bring wisdom, power, blessing. For endless ages will adore the King in all his beauty. How worthy! How worthy! How worthy the king in all his beauty. Let's pray. Lord, you are our king, and we are your people. Help us to fall before you. Lord, help us to worship you now by proclaiming with one voice, You're worthy, Lord. You are worthy. And you're the king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life down. So I pray right now as we respond that we would do so in faith and obedience that you would call. Lord, we pray you would call people to yourself. And as we remember your suffering and death in the supper, Lord. Help us to see and savor you for all you are. And in your son's name we pray.